I liked maybe 10% of my job. And it was the part where I was sitting in front of people, hearing what they had to say, and being able to offer a solution. And, and often by that point, the solution was not a product. So I would then have to turn around with my tail between my legs, sort of oh, do the walk of shame to my manager's office. Because you used to have like frequent daily meetings about what you'd sold so far that day. The classic example is, should I pay down my mortgage or should I invest? Well, if you're only being paid by being invested with, then you have a conflict. Whether you act on that conflict or not is almost beside the point. Whether you disclose that conflict is beside the point. And actually, there's some really good scholarly research that says when you disclose a conflict, you create trust in a client that allows you to act on that conflict without being blamed for it. This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. Sandy Martin wants someone giving financial advice to be paid by the person who's receiving financial advice. And the someone giving financial advice should be paid a fee for the financial services they provide. Sandy worked at a bank for years, and her job was to sell the bank's products. When people came to her office to ask for financial advice, they didn't have to pay her anything. The bank paid her. She worked for the bank, and not for the people asking for advice. The bank would be happy if the people who came into Sandy's office purchased one of the bank's products before they left, and Sandy would be considered a success if she sold as many bank products as she could. A lot of the time, the products at the bank were not the best products for the people who walked into her office. They weren't terrible products, but they weren't the right fit for some of the people. But she couldn't recommend anything else because she would have lost her job at the bank. The more she found out about the variety of financial products that existed, she realized that a lot of the best ones for the people who walked into her office at the bank existed outside of the bank. So she left the bank and created her own financial planning company, which is now called Spring Financial Planning. She decided she wasn't going to sell financial products at all. She would talk to people and find out what they need to achieve their financial goals. They would pay her a fee to help them make a financial plan that wasn't tied to any financial products. When the plan was done and they asked her how they should invest their money in a way that aligned with the goals in their plan, she could point them to a variety of suitable products that they could get from a variety of places. And they would be suitable for her clients because they would help them achieve their financial goals, not because she was getting paid to sell them. Sandy Martin joined me from somewhere in the middle of the province of Ontario to tell her personal finance story. If we want to try and pull all the threads together of why, Sandy, are you doing what you do now, it would be largely accidental. It would be, oh, 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 interesting. Oh, what, I, maybe I'll do that. Oh, okay, that seems right at the time or whatever. 
Well, I, I like that. Let's tell that story. Well, let's tell that story. I mean, but really, if like if we want to talk about earliest memory, I remember saving up for a bike. I remember calculating exactly how much it was going to cost, including okay. tax, and picking it out at Canadian Tire. And I was probably 12 or 13, and it was red. Yeah. It was very, very red. And I was so happy when she told me, she rang it up, and she told me how much it was, and I was within like a penny or two. Oh, nice. Oh, it thrilled me. But I don't remember what I had done to earn or collect that money. I don't so recall. So you don't know where it came from. Nope. And I don't recall having like, oh, I'm, I'm denying myself that in order to save for that. I, nothing. I just remember that feeling of satisfaction that I got the number right. But knowing your parents now, would you have a memory or a created memory now that you knew that you had to save up for it and they wouldn't buy you that bike if you asked them? I don't I mean my my so we grew up there was never loads of money going around my parents worked as largely volunteers for a large part of my life really doing what doing like what they kind of were they were the administrators of a summer camp so it was a year oh, wow. round position but it was so they relied on people kind of gifts through churches and like personal donations and they didn't did and you they, grow they, up in a summer camp are you saying you grew up at a summer camp yeah that bike i used that bike to drive around at summer camp and i remember actually somebody not knowing that it had sort of a lock on the kickstand and they had just borrowed it because that was i guess life at summer camp it was a thing and everybody owned it, it they did not um and she broke the kickstand because she didn't realize how it worked and that and then it was flapping away in the wind that was my memory of that bike was actually oh. all tied up in summer camp <laughs> Wait, okay, so so what what about the rest of the year? What happens the rest of the year? Oh, the rest of the year I'm at school in a small town and I had friends here. And your fine. parents are not you had friends, but your your parents are not working. Yeah, oh no, because there were winter like there were winter camps and then so in the summer you're there and the people are there, right? So you're yes, spending yeah. your time putting out fires, sometimes sometimes literally literal or yeah. But like okay. that's that's the culmination of all the work that you do. In of course. The yeah, yeah. Of course, it doesn't just happen. You gotta. It's gotta be ready. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So you you lived there. Like, well, is it near where you are now? Yeah, it's about twenty minutes away. Okay, so you mm-hmm. stayed in the area. This is like Muskoka type area, yeah. right? Like without giving away your exact location. Yeah. So you're you know you're in Ontario, middle of Ontario, in cottage country. So you grew up there, and you decided to stay. And we'll get to that a little bit later too. But this is, I mean, this is not a normal thing to live in a, on a summer camp. No, no, no not at all. And, <laughs> and, and financially funny, not. Yeah, no, financially not at all either. It's I have very, you know, you think you're going through life with people that you all have the same memories. And of course you don't because they used to come to the summer camp and I used to be at the summer camp and they were very different things. Yes, exactly. Well, you would, I'm guessing you would work with them. Uh, yeah, when I got a little bit older, I spent the first two summers because we, we started there when I was maybe eight, eight, the summer after I turned eight, I want to say eight or nine, doesn't matter. Um, so I spent, this is why I don't know how to pronounce a lot of words. I'm very introverted. So okay. I spent a lot of time in my room reading whatever teen magazines happening to be around. They were awful. They were they were just the worst magazines ever. But I spent my time doing that. And then gradually I realized that, like, oh no, I could. I could like be friends with it. I grew up there. I, we had been there from long before we actually moved there in the summers and my parents started being the administrators, but yeah. it took a while to realize that, you know, like I could, I could go and work and clean toilets and cut brush and paint siding. And it was lovely. I really, that's a really kind of highlight of my growing up years. Well, cause it was my whole growing up years in actual fact. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that, that's that's amazing. And uh, we could probably do a whole episode on what it's like to uh, grow up in a summer camp or all the things. That, <laughs> and, but, and I'm sure it'll come up again in this conversation. But let's go back to the bike. So you got this bike. You use it to get around. Can you think of the next time you actually, like, what, did you actually get paid ever to work at the camp? Or did you start getting paid somewhere else to do another job next? No, then I went, I got my first job at McDonald's. Okay, so, so there's yeah. what a McDonald's. Uh, could you bike to it, or did you have a car? No, no, I was very spoiled in a lot of ways. My parents would drive me there, and it's not. I mean, if anybody knows Gravenhurst, it's it's maybe a fifteen or twenty minute walk from my house. Um, but there were times. I mean, of course, you got a, a closing shift. You're there till midnight or whatever, and so you know, my parents would pick me up at nighttime. But I very rarely had to walk. I've actually when we were in, when it was the summertime and I was working at McDonald's like in shifts and then also coming back and being summer staff at camp, there was always some summer staff person that had the awful job of having to drive me 20 minutes to my job for three ah, hours. They could, they could delegate the, uh, delegate the work to somebody <laughs> else because they had staff. That's <laughs> smart. Well, they're busy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and you're, like, you're important. Yeah, important. I guess I did. they didn't want me to walk that whole thing. Well, how could you really? That's unrealistic. But okay, so so you work at like McDonald's. Uh, it I've heard it being a good uh, first job or in a terrible one. So what was it for you? It was really good. Now, when I look back to it, I mean, the, my favorite part of that job was what they call the hole. So you'd be on drive-through, but you'd only be taking orders and money. And you only had to like, look, you didn't have to go gather the French fries and the this and the that. You have people yelling okay. at you. It was just, what do you want? Give me the money. And if there was a mistake, they found out at the other window. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then that's, is that because you couldn't do anything else while you were doing that? It's not really feasible? Yeah, you can't multi. I mean, so the whole job of McDonald's is like, if you have time to lean, you have time to clean, right? Gotcha. So, and that was great. That actually, of all the things, so I learned how to handle cash at McDonald's. That was great. I mean, it helped me go into... It, I think it was part of the trajectory of be, eventually becoming a financial planner. But oh, it also, really? Okay. Definitely. But it also hmm. helped me, you know, like you can you can watch something boil on the stove and wipe a counter at the same time. So so you're mul- you're learning to multitask, or you know, the, maybe a, a more efficient way of doing things with the McDonald's method. Yeah, the clean as you go method. I think anybody who has worked there would agree is hmm. definitely a thing that you are taught. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what what's the money like at McDonald's or at the time? Uh, it was. I mean, it was just interesting. You'd, I mean, it was interesting. The concept of you start with this amount of money, you make all these transactions, and at the end, you should have this amount of money. Mm, right? Yeah. For ba- that concept for balancing? of balancing. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking, what about your wages? Oh, it was very. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. You used to get. I'm sure maybe you still do. You used to get raises in ten cent increments. Oh, wow. <laughs> when I was a lackluster employee, I mean, I learned hmm. all of these things that I, now as an adult, I can look back and say, that was great. I'm glad I learned that. It definitely changed my habits around this or it put me on the trajectory towards that. But yeah. I was, I didn't care. I was, maybe I was 16 when I started. I think I actually feel like I was a little bit younger, but I was there for four years and I was a garbage employee. I was employee of the month once. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's And it was good. a very small McDonald's. <laughs> Can't be every month, uh, but <laughs> but you're not really so because you don't need this money for anything. Is that you know your parents are taking care of everything for you? Yeah, like basics, uh, I guess. Which is interesting to me when I think back to my growing up years and knowing how much money now, knowing the numbers of how much money my parents. Yeah, actually, a better phrase would be how much money my parents did not have. 
Yeah. I don't recall. I don't recall ever really feeling like, well, I need new pants and I'd best be paying for those pants myself because my parents can't. Like it was yeah. never. Okay. It was never out of, it never felt like it was out of necessity. So again, very spoiled. But what did you do with the McDonald's money? Oh, I spent it. I yeah, used to go so on maybe... like shopping trips and buy stupid shoes that I would never wear again. So it's just all excess stuff that, but it wasn't like, you know, I really need something. So I'm going to work to help my parents out, even nope. though somebody else might have thought of it as the case, because like you said, they're basically working for very low wages. Yeah. Well, yeah, not, and you can't even call it wages. It was just what gifts, let's call it gifts. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, let's, let's drill down on that a little bit more. So what people pay summer camp fees. Yeah. The, so P, the summer camp has had fees, but they went to the operating budget. The, the, there was nothing yeah. in the budget to pay. It comes from a very particular tradition. And so the idea was for both of my parents, and this would still hold true for them, was that you don't tell people that you need stuff. You just wait for it to be provided. And they did. And it was. I mean, quite frankly, it really was. We never, I mean, they, I'm sure, had many moments of stress. They certainly came out of it financially worse off than they had gone in. But that wasn't a measure of success and never has been for them. And the, and the motivation to do this, was there a specific reason why they made this decision uh, when you were eight or so? Yeah, well, they had moved to Gravenhurst from Manitoulin Island. Well, no, they moved to Toronto for like a two years. They had kind of started careers. My dad actually was in the early computing years when there were oh, still yeah. cards. <laughs> My yeah, mom was for the there. early, early. Like, I guess, what, was it 60s? This would have been, they got married in the very early 70s. And so okay, they, yeah, yeah early 60s, 70s, they were in yeah. school in Toronto. And shortly after they got married, they decided to move up here because in, I think it was 63, the camp was started. And it's in, of a kind of a particular faith tradition so it was for okay. them it was the idea of service and this was the i see okay so i was looking for the motivation there yeah because yeah. i obviously not financial i was thinking community but the faith community makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. where you're basically i mean or uh were they part of like are, are we talking like clergy of some kind or anything like that <laughs> Well the, well, the faith tradition that I grew up in does not have clergy. So it's okay. the brethren, you could call it. And it was everybody kind of lay people as clergy. So everybody okay, is kind of the same yeah. position. Okay. So they're, I mean, in a way they're starting like, it's like, it's like going and starting a, a, a church or a mission or something. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's, it's, it seems very, it seems very selfless, right? Yeah. Um, very mission focused. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very cool. So you grew up in this, uh, so the community was was uh, was generous and g gave back as they gave so much. Yeah, there is definitely a tradition of what you would call. Well, this is very patriarchal when I say it now, but you would call them laboring brothers, and they okay. would have like laboring sisters, but <laughs> always attached to a brother somewhere. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just how I guess how it was. You know, I'm not a huge fan of the patriarchy myself, but uh, you know, that's. <laughs> Uh, hopefully, you know, I don't know if uh, it still goes on like that, but uh, yeah, maybe it's more laboring brothers and sisters these days. I, I would hope so. It's not, it, I'm not as, it's not part of my tradition anymore. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Don't so, give me updates on that stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and just, uh, I guess just to put a cap on this, uh, what, what's uh, going on with the camp now? Or, or what are your running. parents doing? Are they retired? 
my parents, well, my dad transitioned, they, they, they spent 10 years as the executive directors. And then it was really important to them because the, who they had taken over from had been there for 25 years. And then they oh, took yeah, over okay. and they were there for 10 years. And they felt like, no, it's really important to keep kind of investing in the younger generation. So then people took over after them. And then there was another round. So we're on like three people since then now. So the camp is still going. A lot of the same people are involved and a lot of new people are involved now. Okay, back to you then. So you're making money at McDonald's just for for kicks, and you're well. You're getting great experience, and I, I always say this. I've probably said it too many times. Customer service uh, in retail and food service seems to be the best kind of experience for you to learn about people and perspective and all that kind of stuff. Would you agree? I would. It, it teaches you how to apologize. Oh which yeah. I think- really important yeah some of us never learn that yeah that's a pet peeve is is not being empathized with right and I, it's not that i did it perfectly or maybe even at all but i understood that you know it's okay to say oh that must be really frustrating or i'm really sorry that let me let me see what i can do let me see if i can take care of it without saying yes it's all my fault you know there's a I difference see. between those two things and i don't know that everybody has grasped that yeah, I, I probably could have used a bit more of that early in life because <laughs> it's taken me some time to even get to, I'm not even quite fully there. I, I don't know if any of us are no. fully there when it comes to development, <laughs> right? I mean, or <laughs> anything. Everybody always has some room for uh, for working on themselves, right? Mm-hmm. But that is a, a good early experience to go through. So what about after that? Um, so I didn't realize that I needed to save for school. Like post-secondary education was just a thing that you you did by getting loans or whatever. It yeah, wasn't, we didn't yeah. really talk about that very much. It was just, I came from that generation of high schoolers where like, well, of course, you're smart. You go to university. And that was But no one talked about how you were going to do it? Uh-uh. Hmm. No. So, so what happened? Well, I borrowed money. And I, my parents didn't make any and they didn't have much in the way of assets. So I borrowed a lot of money. So you Relatively were able to get, speaking. Was it government uh, at the time? Mm-hmm. Were you it was OSAP, both OSAP and then Canada student loans. Great. So, and because your parents were low income, you qualified for, for full OSAP? Oh, yeah. Mucho, mucho OSAP. But I had no idea what full OSAP was. And the thing is, mm. I didn't even sit down and go, okay, I need. I, and actually, I was. So all of that was me directed. It's not because my parents weren't interested, it was because I was so interested, but to a point. So I was interested in filling out the forms. I was interested in finding out where my residence was going to be and decide, like figuring out how I was going to do all the things and drawing the map so my parents knew where to drop me off that day. All those kinds of logistical sort of administrative things. But the, yeah. just the concept of I'm going to get X amount of money and I know I need X for tuition and X for residence and X for meal plan and that leaves me this much left over. Or I have this much in savings, not a lot, but I have this much in savings and that's going to supplement. None of that math. I don't recall doing that. Not even one time in all four years I went to university. Really? None, so none of the money stuff, all, all of the, the administration, like making sure you got to where you were going, but none of making sure that you could afford it. Nope. And I did see accidental. It's all just accidental in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so what, well, what, did you, uh, what did you take? Well, I thought I was going to go for creative writing. Oh my goodness, this is a very interesting, not at all story about something that's very strange. (laughs) Um, So for the first two years, I was at York, and you you go, in the first year, you're just a general undergrad for this program, and then in second year, you get into the introductory sort of creative writing programs, and at the end of that, you apply to get into the creative writing program. So the last two years are actually the creative writing degree. And by the end of the the second year, I thought, this is stupid, I don't want to do this. I loved writing, I I mostly just loved reading. 
Um, and so I switched my major and I graduated as a, a history major. So I have my degree in history, which was good. It was really good. It was great to go to university. It was worth spending, I don't know, cumulatively maybe $40,000 to figure out. I, so, sorry, let me go back one step. Right, I was a kid in high school in that small pool in a small high school that liked to read and thought about things and had very unformed opinions, I'm sure, but was one of the smart kids, you know? So then yeah. you go to university and I was really fortunate to realize that there were lots of other smart people there too. And, it, you know, I, I wasn't anything that special. It was a good lesson. <laughs> So okay, so you <laughs> you were thinking maybe you were you were top of the world before, yeah. and then you got a little reality check. Is that the value you're saying? Yeah, and it wasn't a little reality check. Like it was, it was a it big, was big one. Okay, very big. okay, yeah, okay. It was so very valuable. What was that? What was the effect of that reality check on you then? What that there are all sorts of other opinions in the world, and just because you have one, it doesn't make it a right one. Okay, um, but you have to support. That you have to dig in. I think it probably there's there's some amount of angsty learning in there somewhere, but that you have to you have you can't just say I know this is true. You have to support it with you know research and reasoned argument. That's the lesson I learned about me. I didn't really learn any lessons about other people other than hey, there's other smart people in the world. Lots okay, of them. so so you learn some stuff about yourself, and you have this degree in history, and you have a whole bunch of OSAP debt. Mm -hmm. What happens after that? <laughs> well, before I got the degree in history, I got married. <laughs> oh, so. okay. So you got married while you were in school. I got married between third and fourth year. All right. We were very, very young and little. Um, and uh, we didn't, my husband is from Pennsylvania, so he couldn't work when he got here. This is all, when you look back, it just seems like, how come nothing really horrible happened to you, little <laughs> silly person? Like he had saved up money. He had been working kind of full time before we got married. So he had some money saved up. He lived in this little apartment for my whole fourth year and actually for three years, you know, kind of from when we got married. Um, I was like off campus, of course. And we had like we would have a $50 a week grocery budget and we would we didn't have a car because he couldn't bring the kind of car he had. They couldn't import it or whatever. I don't remember all the details. Something to do with seatbelts. <laughs> it had seatbelts. We knew that much. <laughs> but we had like he was so yeah he wasn't allowed to work i still had my we had his savings and my student loan um and we would like carry a backpack to the grocery store uh and all week that we couldn't afford really even to fill it but that that was like our and he was the one doing the money i wasn't even thinking i just knew we had 50 dollars to spend on groceries every week i was gonna ask you about that so because it sounded like you were starting to budget but you only started to budget for groceries because of him yeah. Oh, yeah. Because he was the one, one that sat down and kind of thought about it. It's so bananas when I think about who I am now and who I was back then. <laughs> Very yeah. strange. I actually did not start budgeting myself or be even that interested in like adding the numbers up until 2009. Oh, no. Wow. Wait, my daughter was born 2008. So it was 2007. Excuse me. 2007. And I was already working in the bank for two years by then. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, this is not uncommon for for people to not be so interested in things and then something ha happens or something flips and then they become interested in it. And we all have to go through our own, I keep saying the word trajectory. I don't know why it always <laughs> comes up, but we have a, let's say journey instead, right? We all have our own journey to, to where we are. And yeah, some, some people it's all over the place. So where you, you end up working in the bank, but, but what did you do after uh, school with this? You have a history degree. 
Well, I thought that I was going to be in the world of publishing somehow. I thought I was going to be an editor. Mm, I got my first job out of university at a, turns out, like combined, like private label, mutual fund, tax, insurance, and like corporate registry company, which okay. looking back, I had no idea. I, it was an awful place. I hated it. And this is just random? How does just this, random. You just apply there was a job posting of something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. For, and for what? what? What are you even doing? Executive assistant, it was called. Okay, I used so you're to take, as an EA. Wow. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Well, because, see, the administrative side of things, like putting things in their place, yep, filling yep. out the forms, organizing stuff, all super appealed to me. Okay. Um, the place yep. did not. So I, I quickly, actually, that I, that was, I was fired from that job because I hated that person so much. He, was, he used to ask, I, I can't even say it on your show. He used to say really horrible things. And I didn't oh, know really? that I could like say that I didn't want him to say that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I just treated him with utter contempt and disdain. Wow. So like we're talking about like on the verge of sexual harassment type stuff? Oh, it wasn't on the verge. No, no, it was compl- uh, blatant, <laughs> it was well blatant sexual harassment. Okay. It's on the wow. other side of the road. <laughs> and we're, and th- this is the 90s or no? Was it the 90s? It must have been. Yeah. No, it was the early 2000s. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh-huh. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, that's that's really you know somebody should have somebody should have been able to stick up for you uh, somehow I don't know yeah I don't it didn't even connect actually really didn't connect until not that long ago that that's what it was so that's yeah, okay. how accidental my life has been I don't even know sure. what was happening to me at the time yeah I guess it was something you just weren't thinking about as being you know you knew he was being a jerk yeah. right. Yeah, that's, that's how what, it and you just reacted me. that way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're a jerk. I hate you. I'm going to look at. I don't know. People who know me will know that I don't. I'm not great at hiding what I think of someone with my face. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so, is that why you didn't want the video on for this? I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's because I just walked my kids to school, and oh man, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I mean, I just uh, I did the first one with uh, Squadcast uh, with Janine, and I think she's going to be on. Yeah, she'll she'll be on the week before. She couldn't sit in front of the screen. It's just for us being able to see each other to make the conversation easier. It doesn't actually record the video. I think it uses a bandwidth, and not everybody wants to be seen. I talk to a lot of people by video. I mean, that's how my entire practice is virtual. Sure, I don't yeah, ever. Yeah, you're you're virtual. Yeah. Yeah, but I find it's much easier to concentrate if I can't see them. I don't know why that is. Yeah. Well, maybe it's because I can't see me too. Because you know, it always shows you a little thumbnail of yourself. And I used to have like a a sticky note I would put over my face just so I wouldn't, not because I I hate myself that, but I would get distracted by, oh, is that how I look? Because I don't see myself in action that often. I guess if you're having an in-person conversation with someone, you're not looking in a mirror, you're looking at that person. Yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. Why, why do we have, why do we care what we look like? I mean, maybe just see if we have anything on our face, but like you think we would look in the mirror before we got on video too right yeah okay so that was a bad experience so you left that job even though uh, it was a little bit in the financial space that didn't seem to you weren't like did that lead to the next you're gonna continue in the financial space no okay i didn't even connect the two in my brain even later on in in my career in the trajectory of my career sure yeah so, so then i remember sitting at home kind of thinking and it didn't feel it never felt like a crisis nothing has ever felt like a crisis ever in okay my life, pretty much interesting but i remember being at home and talking to south and saying like oh, i don't know what to do next he's like well you like books why don't you go work at a bookstore and so i did like everybody <laughs> else with a you know four-year undergrad degree sure i went to work <laughs> at a oh you know pro- that's probably not uh, untrue that there's a lot of people with four-year undergrads working in bookstores Many. just how it works out sometimes yeah how'd you like it 
I was deeply disappointed. I really did think that, and, and I still, I did have these conversations, but I thought working at a bookstore meant that you would be working with and for people who are really interested in books. But what are, what are they really? I mean, the people who manage the store are interested in managing. So it doesn't matter what kind of store you manage. If you're a good manager, you manage a bookstore, sure. you manage okay. a auto parts store, whatever. People who own the store are interested in making money, of course. It wasn't an independent bookstore. It was it was Indigo. Oh, I see. <laughs> so, okay. So it was very manufactured. And I remember being just aghast, this innocent feeling person who's like, I love books. I love reading. And having one of the people I was working with, being like, I don't really like books. I only read magazines. And just thinking like, who are you? Why are you Why are here? you here? There are many jobs, uh, you know, similar to this. Wow. That's because yeah, I, I would have that. There's that, that romantic uh, mm-hmm. you know, view of working in a bookstore and just like being surrounded by all these, I want to say tomes. I don't know why that word came to, <laughs> to my mind. That's so odd. But <laughs> it wasn't Oxford so, library. <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, we went to v- uh, Vienna and the Vienna library, uh, my wife, we walked in there and that's the national library of, of Austria. And it's just like one of those with the, the big long, uh, you know, rolling staircases and tall mm-hmm. things and everything. Oh, she was just in heaven. I had to leave her alone for a little bit. In there. <laughs> but yeah, may, maybe you had, this is like, Oh, it's going to be like that. Yeah. And I did, I thought like, wow, there's going to be people that want to, Oh, did you read this? I did. Oh, well then you'll love this. Or I don't know. If yes. I it's not like that. <laughs> every once in a while but not really it was yeah. so it was a solitary adventure so when wow. i could reshelving or I, I mean i very rarely got to work in fiction which is the best department because all the books are the same size and you don't have problems like re, like in the art oh. section it's like this and there's only one of each copy in the art section so you're trying to make it look nice but really it's just like i'll just fit on the shelf <laughs> don't fall over so, anymore so the but, logistics of uh, of books, yeah, of course. Yeah, I didn't. So that part, so that was sort of, I just didn't care for that so much. But then I realized that the people, the times that you got to talk to the most people were at the cash desk. Mm. And I had cash experience, right? And I liked that part of my job at McDonald's. So I started working on the cash desk. And then I started realizing that there's like organizational opportunities at the cash desk. So I became what you call a cash supervisor, which is just nothing. It's just like an underling bureaucrat position. But you got to like, you were checking the tills and you were making sure that everybody balanced and you were like, oh, I love that. Plus there were books involved sort of peripherally because that's what you were, you know, getting cash for. <laughs> so, so that was so you, mm. the money part. Uh, so you're finding the money part again. Like, I mean, not everybody at McDonald's does money and not everybody at a bookstore does money, but you're, you're getting into that in each one of those. I found the money. You found the money and you found this something that you like, but what about your income at this point? Like, how are you guys doing and is this sustainable? Still, yeah, still not great. Sustainable still was not part of of the concept for us. It was like, can we buy groceries? Can we pay rent? Can we go to the movies together? And can we drive to Pennsylvania a lot to visit his family or whatever? And what's your debt load like at this point? Well, I have to imagine it was somewhere around forty, thirty-six to forty thousand dollars, right? Yeah. And we didn't have anything else. Like we couldn't qualify for anything else, of course. So we didn't have a car loan. So it really was only the student loan, and we were fairly cheap just naturally. So you're on you're on maintenance mode. You're not, but you're not like able to save. You're not at that no. point yet. And I weren't. We were. Thing. 
there was never a moment where we were like, oh, wow, we don't make a lot of money, but we have this big debt. Let's like really dig in on that debt. There was never one of those like come to Jesus debt moments either. Yeah, no motivation. No. Oh, nobody's talking about it. Neither one of you have an interest in, in that or reading about personal finance at this point or anything like that. No, no, no. Okay. No, no, no. Okay, so what's your, uh, so how long you at Indigo then? Um. Well, it must have been about two and a half or three years because then we wow, left. Okay, we were wow. living kind of downtown Toronto at that point. Yeah. And then we moved with, for, for Seth's job, we moved up to Newmarket area. So I'm just kind of out of the city. I'm in a very small town. Actually, it was, it was the Newmarket area, but it was definitely not in town. Um, and there was a chapters there. So I transferred to that chapters. <clears throat> okay. And at the same time, I have no idea why this happened. Again, so accidental. There was a job opportunity at the CIBC okay, and as, a, so as just a teller, not just a teller, but as a teller. Um, you start as a teller. Did your cash supervisor experience help with that or no? Yeah, except for, oh my goodness, Bo, I could never balance. For, I was as, So the manager oh, really? hired me okay. telling me that she wanted me to be a personal banker. So on the other side. So she sure. wanted me to be, you know, that person. So, but first you have to get some experience in banking. So let's have you be a teller for a while. So a teller yeah. for a while. And I was horrible at it. I was great talking to people, could connect okay. really well. No problem there, but could uh, not balance to save my life. <laughs> so you, but you would, you would be able to balance at the bookstore. Yeah, because they, you didn't have to do foreign transactions at the bookstore. Yeah. There was no like U.S. instruments or selling of certified checks, money orders, that sort of thing. Like there was none oh, of wow, that yeah. stuff. I sold something for $7.99 plus tax. I received $7.99 plus tax. I started with this okay. amount of float. I ended with this. Like that was easy. That's just addition and subtraction. There was no multiplication. And there was so lots was of multiplication the, at the bank. <laughs> so it was all the variables, the FX and all that at the bank. Mm, mm. Other, other weird things that might happen that, that seemed to throw you off. I was off. One night I balanced on a $99,000 double error. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's uh, okay. That was bad. Uh, bad at it. Bad. Like a one error uh, fix another error? Is that, yeah. is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. So oh. <laughs> 200, I mean, essentially $200,000 errors in one day. <laughs> but that they all but I guess they balance each other out for different people or something or well what? no so I closed like, out my till everything was balanced and then then they found they found I think probably there was two errors like in there but you're like I balance <laughs> it was balanced so it must be right well I don't mean that exposes some flaws in the system I suppose well but, there was, I mean I was working with tellers who were lifers so yeah, who like, would know those rules? Like, well, it divides by nine, so it's probably transposition. It sounded like yeah. Martian to me. I have no idea what you're saying. Divides by nine, so it's probably transposition. That doesn't make any sense. But oh, Bev yeah. knew everybody's account numbers, knew exactly how to find errors. Fortunately, I was not a teller for long, and they left that in her domain. So Okay, so wh where, did you, where did you move on to? Well, then I became a personal banker. Technically, yes, okay. So they wanted you there. Yeah. <laughs> so personal banker, in that, what does that mean? People come in and sit with you? Yeah, that's the person that's in the office. So not yeah. like the necessarily the important office, um, but that's the person that you go to if you just walk in and say, "Hey, I need a mortgage," or yeah. you know, "I need to I need to buy an RRSP or whatever the thing is." That's they come to my office. I opened accounts and all that. So stuff. this is this is where you find out. Oh, well, you already know that you're good with the people, and is this where you find out that this is something you might want to do for a while i was very much in danger of drinking the kool-aid at the beginning and the kool-aid at the bank is sell visa cards people need lines of credit if they should they should consolidate their debt in a debt consolidation loan like all of that was very much it wasn't 
this in the service of the people. It was in the service of my scorecard. Was your mandate to try to balance the scorecard with the interests of the people? And could you do that while you were there? No, you can't. You can't serve the people and the scorecard at the same time and do either really? one of them well. It never felt sinister. It just always felt sure. like two. It's like double speak, you know. In 1984, it just felt like yeah, yeah, people were yeah. saying one thing, but everybody knew that they meant actually no. Just sell more Visa cards. I don't care about the other stuff. <laughs> okay. So you you like how did it feel like? So somebody comes in and you know they have debt or they know they don't need a card, but like you still have to say yeah, but maybe you could use this uh how does that feel it felt really horrible and i was bad at that part anyway so i i got through i got through my career my early career in banking by being really good with people and really developing relationships so that they would come back and being really thorough with the mortgage application and i had the best mutual fund compliance files like our compliance officer would be like well you did all the right stuff good charting notes. <laughs> so I did all the administrative stuff and I did all the people stuff really well so that the sales stuff, even though that was really the only important metric was buried for a long enough. Like if I'd stayed at one branch for long enough, eventually I would have either had to capitulate and be better at sales or leave. Well, okay. leave. And I mean, warm bodies at a bank, you're just, you just need warm bodies. It doesn't even matter almost if you're bad at sales, like they can just keep haranguing you and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but they need people to be in that job. And if you're really bad at it, then you might get fired. But for the most part, you just, you're just a warm body. But I, I changed. So I wanted to move back to here, right? Back to Muskoka, back to Gravenhurst. We were thinking about like we'd been married for, I don't know, some 10 years or something, seven years by then. We wouldn't have kids. Okay. So we moved back here because there was a position opened about 40 minutes away in Huntsville at a CIBC. Okay. So you transferred transferred and then that manager her name is Shelly Crozier she's retiring actually as we record this, this is kind of her last couple of weeks at that branch at CIBC oh, okay. she was fantastic she's the person who gave me a copy of the wealthy barber returns I had oh. never read any personal finance had, I mean I, I by that time I guess I had a subscription to money sense magazine back the old sort of print version and I read that a lot so I was starting to be interested because I kind of knew the terminology and the concepts sort of so how, at this point. how early is this what uh, what this year is, is this 2007 2007 you're just sort of getting interested in personal finance because you're becoming exposed to it at the bank yeah because I was realizing that my role at the bank was I have this hmm, hmm, there's so many things into this I had this shelf of products behind me so what I was starting to see was people were coming in to express a stress or a frustration. And of course, the only things behind me were products. There were things that I could sell. And so I was, I mean, by year two, actually by not too long into my career, I realized like, I don't, I don't want to do this. The bank is doing wrong things and I don't want to do it anymore, but where else was I going to go? Okay. So you knew, you knew this early and you're starting to form in your head, like what, what could I possibly do maybe? Yeah. And get out of this. Well, see, not even, I kind of thought I could just be in banking and sort of by the time I got to Shelly's branch in Huntsville, I thought that's because she would run interference. So she would tell you that like, this is your scorecard, but it's real. she would demonstrate how important it was that we were a local branch. We knew the people coming in and we took care of them, whatever it was that they needed by doing the right thing for them. Okay. That, that's great. Yeah. I mean, and we're, we're still, I mean, when we look back, I'm sure we can identify lots of different reasons where, you know, back then everything was still a nail and all we had were hammers. 
And I, there are things, problems that people had that I would definitely solve differently now. Still lots of kind of unsophisticated bank solutions back then, but really feeling like, no, it's okay. I don't have to live up to the sales targets. I can just be the person here doing the right things for the people in front of me. Okay, so she enabled that. She That was the culture. And it was like the best you could do. Maybe it wasn't the best when you look back, but it was the best you could do at the time for the people. That's right. Under the constraint of the business model of banking. Sure, I, I sure. Could, I could live with myself. Okay, so acceptable at the time. Yeah. And now you're reading personal finance, and then she, you ta- start talking to her about various things too. She gives you the book? A little. She gave me the book, and we talked about it. Sort of, that's when I realized like there is such a thing as an index fund. Yeah, because you guys were selling mutual funds. That was, yeah, that was about the time that they rolled out. About 2005, CIBC rolled out what they call managed portfolio service. So it's kind of a fund of funds, right? You know those. Um, that rebalance auto, rebalances automatically and it's made up like the underlying funds that make up that asset allocation for that particular portfolio. So the, yeah. you know, the balanced portfolio, whatever, were all CIBC funds as well. So ultimately they ended up costing 2.2% or whatever the number was. But then you got to talk about like, well, it's there's asset allocation according and to your diversified risk diversified and yeah. Exactly. exactly. So or, that or concept, matches your tolerance. Yeah, like you said. Yeah. That's right. And so those were the, that was around the time she gave me this book. And then I'm starting to ask our district manager, like, how come we don't have one of these for index funds? And sort of getting the brush off and just starting that's to right. realize that there's stuff happening here that I, I thought I knew sort of what was going on, but I didn't really. But the real catalyst was, as I said before, we, I went on maternity leave and I had started doing, because of course, when you're doing mortgage applications, you've got to go through people's expenses and pull out the ones that count towards their total debt service ratio or their gross debt service ratio. So you're doing that anyway with them. And I always thought that my role was to also educate them about, especially first time home buyers, like, you know, there's going to be this thing that you have to pay for. And, but I was spending more time with clients than I was supposed to, like, you're only really supposed to have an hour with any client to and sell them something. And how you would you would always be longer than uh, oh, longer yeah. than the hour? Oh, longer, much longer. <laughs> I just wanted to talk to them about stuff. I was just yeah. interested in them. <laughs> that was how the only part. How of the dare you, though? How dare you waste waste the bank's time? <laughs> it's awful of me <laughs> helping people. By then Terrible. it was already frustrating. But so, but then I so I went on maternity leave, right? So I got, combed through our HR manual, figured out exactly how it worked with EI, kind of knew to the penny what was going to come in and when, and then looked at our expenses and was and this was back. So when, that was back when I thought a budget was a spreadsheet. Like you just wrote it all out, and if it balanced at the end, you had a good budget, right? It's <laughs> yeah, not like yeah. something that you had to live. Um, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but so that's what I was starting to pay attention to, and with that. Just even not not really necessarily applying any of the concepts from the wealthy barber returns, but just knowing that they were the concepts and having having our first child. And, you know, this is a pretty new experience for you, right? Like this is not <laughs> this is like happened not that long ago for you. Yeah. Yeah. I've, we're three months in. Uh, well, Aww. so far it's pretty cheap, but uh, um, I hear they get it more expensive when they start eating food. Yeah. So. I mean, if they're eating the same thing <laughs> that you're eating, it's. It's yeah, it's not, not, like again, that's not so bad. Yeah, it's yeah, not they, bad. Everyone's telling me now that kids are expensive, babies not so much. But before they said babies were expensive. So I don't know who to believe, really. Believe yourself. You just live your yeah, life and yeah. do the things. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But yeah, so you're you're finding out, uh, you're, you're starting to budget, you're in, you have your kids and you're on Matley, you're budgeting for yourself. Well, yeah, what did the EI uh, result tell you then? Well, it wasn't even so much that, because on the mat leave budget, I, we could live. It was fine, but I didn't okay. want to go back. 
So I already ah. knew the banking wasn't really for me. I'd known that for a long time. So grateful to kind of have Shelly to cushion me from the really sure, harsh realities yeah. of the job, but knowing I didn't want to be there. Really yeah. wanted to be at home. Or one of us. I, I didn't, I mean, at the time, I, I thought me, of course, was the natural. It's kind of just the way I grew up. But I wanted one of us to be at home uh, with our kid. And mm -hmm. so knowing that when I looked at that budget and knowing, well, if there's a zero in that cell, none of this is going to add up. And by that time, my husband had started his own company. And so like we kind of knew, oh, that's a big risk. I don't think we can do that. So I sort of girded my loins. I was going to go back to work and realizing how much daycare cost. Like that whole period from when we had our first child and I first was looking at how the numbers balanced, living the experience, desperately wanting to be able to stay home with her, having to go back to work after her immediately. I think I went back to work pregnant with our second. Oh, you just... <laughs> Right away. Okay. Yeah. So immediately, that, it happens, right? It was, and it was kind of on purpose. Um, longing for just looking, starting work that first day and knowing that I was just waiting for the last day already. Wow. To come. Yeah. That's, that's not a good place to be, even if it's, you know, a, a manager you like or yeah. yeah, you're going back because of necessity. Yeah. Yeah, or, for sure. Or, um, I guess I don't want to say fear, but uncertainty. You don't know how your husband's business is going to go and you can't both be off work. So you go back to sort of uh, security for security. That's it. Yeah. We had a plan though. I was going okay, okay. to you went back with a plan. Okay. Went back with a plan. I was going to be able to stay home after my next baby was born because everything else, it just kind of, again, accidentally, you know, my experience with wanting something financially and having to give things up to get to that. Yeah. I mean, any, I think a lot of people, the first time they go through that experience, they fail. And then sometimes the result is, well, this budgeting stuff is stupid. I'm not going to do it anymore or of whatever. Course, yeah. Um, so we Giving kind up of the first time yeah, yeah. we kind of failed. We, so that was the first kind of big specific measurable goal that we had. It was very time bound um, and it, it failed. So I, I put him in daycare and then I put our oldest in daycare with him because she had been at home with me when, when I was off with him. And that felt like failure. It felt, well, and I don't, it's fine. Lots of people love having their children in childcare and I totally identify with them. It's great. I did not. I did not like it at all. Why couldn't you make it work? Debt, my student loans. And by then we had a car loan too. Okay. And so a mortgage. you still had the debt. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. Because we hadn't that... done anything about it. In hindsight, then, if do you think you guys could have hustled in early life to pay off those loans and and been in a, in a different situation? Or oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because when we moved, when we left Toronto, and we moved with my husband's employer, we lived in their basement apartment, and our rent was four hundred dollars a month. And I was working full time at the bank. Yeah. Uh, and he was working full time. Like we weren't making loads and loads of money, but we were making way more than we needed. Like way more. We could have saved seventy percent of our income. And what were you doing with it otherwise? Mm -hmm. I don't just, even know. Just whatever, living, uh, living, mo you didn't have any motivation to not spend it. Is That's that right. a good, uh, yeah. Yeah. And no real concept of what spending it was doing. If only we could go and tell ourselves, whenever someone's asking me, like, why do I need to save? I'm always just going to work and I can pay for this and that. And, you know, whatever, I'll retire later. I'll save it uh, that later. I'm thinking... You know, you don't know. You don't know. I, I can give you specific examples of me or people that have something happen to them and, and wish, wish they would have some savings so they don't have to go get, you know, go into debt or whatever. It's so hard to communicate to people, right? Well, 
but again, it's a lived experience thing. If I had gone back, I mean, notwithstanding all the time paradoxes and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, but if I was standing in front of myself as a 40-year-old woman telling my 22-year-old self, like, oh, look, this is what's going to happen. And you just need, like, this stuff is important to pay attention to. I'm not sure 22-year-old me would have really got the message. I don't know. I, yeah, you know who knows? No, I think you're right. I think we, I, I, I wish this wasn't the case, but I think we all have to just go through something. Yeah. Whatever that something is. And for you, it was really the was the motivation to not go back just that you didn't want to do whatever you were made to be doing at the bank? Yeah. I mean, the job, I, I liked maybe 10% of my job. And it was the part where I was sitting in front of people, hearing what mm. they had to say, and being able to offer a solution. And, and often, by that point, the solution was not a product. So I would then have to turn around I loved that part. I said, oh, look, if, what if you just try this? Or what if you did kind of think about maybe saving a little bit more, whatever that thing was. And then I have to kind of, with my tail between my legs, sort of oh, do the walk of shame to my manager's office. Because you used to have uh, like frequent daily meetings about what you'd sold so far that day and have to go oh, to my manager's really? office, who was not Shelly by that point, and say like, oh, no, I, they ended up actually deciding to pay more off their mortgage instead of investing the money. So, no. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like that sounds a little bit degrading to me. Am I wrong to it was, think about it, it that was way? Because we were, we were vehicles to sell the products. We were not independent, smart, trained people who were yes. supposed to solve the problems. We were supposed to yes. sell the solutions. So you, spoiler, of course, you end up becoming one of these, uh, uh, what did you say, educated, trained, smart people? <laughs> educated, <laughs> trained, smart people. Well, I have autonomy. <laughs> I'm my, and and, it's, my and autonomous. Only, that's yes. right. And my only job is to please. They're the only people that pay me. So if I give the client advice that ends up doing better for me than it does for them. So like, oh, there's some kind of scorecard where I talked them into investing instead of paying down their mortgage. Haha, I get a bonus at the end of the year. If that was the way that it was now, I wouldn't be doing this. I just couldn't. I can't. I only want yeah. to be pleasing the person who's sitting in front of me. And sometimes pleasing them means telling them, no, you can't do that thing that you want to do unless you give up this other thing. So it's not so, always pleasant, but it is no. in their best interest instead of like some faceless person sitting at a desk on Bay Street up high in a tower <laughs> while looking yeah. at spreadsheets or whatever. <laughs> and that's the the big difference, isn't it? It's like... It should be in their best interest. This is people's lives and their money, and it's not uh, a size of a television that's probably not going to make a huge difference uh, to their budget. You know, if I talk them into a 40-inch instead of the 35 and I make a higher commission as a salesperson, people understand that. I feel like you can't apply that to financial services. I mean, you can in the very real sense that that's exactly the way that it is. Well, that's the way it is. It just doesn't seem right. It, it, it doesn't seems seem wrong. Right. Yeah. Well, and it seems yeah. wrong because... For for the other reason that people come to, people express a problem, but have all sorts of different values around what the solution ought to be. And the solution isn't necessarily, like even the most rudimentary training at the bank would tell you, or even in the CFP program sometimes, will tell you that there is one optimal mathematically correct answer to whatever the problem is that this person is showing you. And very rarely is it connected to the person that might want to volunteer for 10 years of their life or who just who have a different definition of success than what mathematically right. optimal would suggest. Yes. And it's, so it's, yeah, it's not fit them into this formula. It's, it's like you, like you were trying to do talk to them, find out 
find out stuff about them so that you can help them. And and so you end up doing this, but how did you get out of the bank and how did you end up being able to afford to do this? I had my third baby, oh, <laughs> who, so, among uh, other things, <laughs> is our money baby. <laughs> Now, in isolation, if somebody said, how do I, you know, change my life and and, uh, become more successful, have another child, that doesn't sound correct. No, it does not sound, (laughs) no, it's not optimal. No, but so we knew that we wanted, so, I mean, independent of all the other things, our family wasn't done and we wanted to have another one. You knew. And the failure of knowing that I had to go back to work after my son was very motivating. And the other motivating factor was that the new manager, when I returned from maternity leave with my son, was horrible. She was not great. She'd read the wrong books in management school. She was no Shelly. She was no Shelly. She was like the anti-Shelly. <laughs> okay, anti-Shelly. Anti-Shelly. Uh, and so she, she made it a very, it was a hostile work environment. <laughs> And I just wanted to do my thing. I'd been in that branch. I'd been in my role first. I was, I mean, I was a senior in banking at that point, yeah. in personal banking, because at sure. some point your ambition tells you, you need to go on to be some kind of district manager or a manager at the bank or whatever. I didn't want to do any of that. I just wanted to keep doing my job. And that's rare. I don't know if anybody, like if you've experienced that at the bank, you you go, you speak to somebody, you feel like you got a good relationship with them. And six months later you go and they're not there anymore. And it repeats itself many times over a series of years. It's because they don't want to be there because that's not a great job. Gotcha. Um, but I wanted to be there and only there. And so to have, be in that role, know it kind of cold, know how to do it well, not the sales part, but everything else. And then to constantly come into opposition with this woman was just more than I could handle. So we had learned our lesson from the first, well, I guess the second maternity leave. At that point, we had also done a lot of work on our debt. Not, I mean, some a lot of it was paid off, but then we we consolidated it, which actually was a very good idea, mathematically speaking. Um, but so that made it so that, and, and Seth's business was doing well. So for all of those different reasons, yeah. yeah, it was okay. like, no, now's the time. And plus, I mean, honestly, the motivation of putting a third child in daycare, because we had our kids so close together that nobody was in oh, school yet. Wow. the cost All of, of those things came together. <laughs> but I didn't leave, I did not leave the bank thinking I'm leaving the bank, I'm having this third baby, and then I'm going to start my own company. That was no. not it. What was the thought? You just, I'm leaving, leaving the bank. I'm leaving. And I don't know what I want to do yet. And I don't have to do anything. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to be a mom of three kids under four, which was a and lot. Ma- <laughs> and ma- and make it work just, just on the business income. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So that, that you had that, it, um, I'm assuming it wasn't super ideal, but you knew you could be okay. Yeah, it was tight. But by then we had gotten to the point where we sort of knew we were certainly not like wildly successful at it every time, but we had some structures in place to not only, because a budget isn't to tell you if it balances, it's also to give you kind of like those bumpers in bowling. Like you have to have some kind of structure in place that signals you when you're in the you know diaper aisle that your mortgage payment is going to come out next week and maybe you need to like make sure that you don't spend anything more than just on the diapers or <laughs> whatever. So we had the structures in place to keep us within these boundaries that we'd set for ourselves because it was a pretty low income, but we could make it work. Yeah. Okay. And what's his uh, business, by the way? He was in construction. He's a stay at home dad now. Okay. So there's like, like 10 years of this story. We don't even know yet. You flipped. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're, I think we're going to have to uh, accelerate a little bit. 
<laughs> so so yeah, let me uh I'll just I'll just kind of fast forward us a bit. So then you decide you're going to become a CFP. Yes? No, I actually just decided <laughs> I was going to call myself a financial planner. Okay, yeah, which I mean people can still do, maybe not for very much longer, but oh. That's fine. And, you and you know, to just to defend that for a second, you were working as a financial planner, quote unquote, for a while already. So technically, you did have the skills, some skills to do that. Yes, I did. I did. I would say that I had maybe FPSC one skills okay. in some of the areas. There was certainly there was stuff I didn't know I didn't know um, yes. that I wish that I had known. And that's why designation is valuable because it gives you, you know, you have you have a, a fuller and then a fuller knowledge, and you have obviously uh, the body, the organization to refer to as well, and uh, ethics and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah, those were important. They didn't mean yeah. there were things I could. I certainly, I'm on record from years ago saying like I don't need my CFP. And sure, there were certainly sure. things that this program does not, or it, in its iteration when I went through the program, it didn't teach some of the things that I thought were core foundational things that ought to be part of that program. But it's, I mean, it is, it's ever evolving. So, you so know. what, what motivated you then to, to actually formalize that eventually? Uh, I had been, golly, I did not apply for my CFP until I want to say 2016. I started going through the FPSC one coursework Okay. So I had been working since I like I started the business January 1st, 2013. So for three years and I wasn't like I wasn't pretending to know things I didn't know. It's just that I only worked with people with people who didn't have what I assume who I assume did not need me to look at some of the areas where I did not feel competent. So there was that blessing. Yeah. But at the same time, at, like now looking back, I think, well, we didn't even know how those things may have actually impacted your life. And if we had looked at them. We may have we may have realized that no, it actually was important to look at your whatever. I can't even come up with an example, but anyway. So, what, but like, so what, I states I, like ta like estate uh, and will stuff. And yeah, estate will stuff. I was I was never very confident on the insurance side of things either. Which sure, it seems sort of like I should have gotten it. It's pretty straightforward, but but I mean, I guess in a way, those are ancillary things. Like just to, uh, for my situation as a coach, like I'm very basic, and I do not get into you know I wouldn't call myself a financial planner, for example. But <laughs> I, I I would prefer to a financial planner if somebody wanted something more robust, for example, yeah. right? Which you maybe uh, could have done or did do. All the time. I used to yeah. send Jason Heath so much business that one day sure. he just had to send me a thing of flowers because <laughs> exactly, people would call right? and be like, no, I don't do that. Here's Jason. So the, <laughs> there's room for all levels, but you felt like you wanted to be more of a, a complete uh, planner or have the full full package to offer, say. Well, and it just became really interesting. I, I remember even back in 2013, I remember really digging into the retirement income research that Mike Kitsis and Wade Faw and um, Dirk Cotton. And there's a lot of people writing, they still are writing now, but um, some really, really deep, interesting stuff with concepts that I only was kind of lightly aware of. So, um, so getting the CFP became less of a hurdle because so much and in fact a lot of the stuff like sequence of return risk and retirement income research is not really a, like there's part of it in cfp but you're not really getting like a deep designation in that particular area it's kind of a generalist designation right but it seemed less daunting because i had already done i've been reading like scholarly papers for three or four years at that point so it 
didn't seem as big of a deal to do it. And plus, I just wanted it. By that time, it was like, look, it's at some point, I'm going to have to have it. I may as well get it now. Uh, and then I can forget all about kind of studying. Like I spent all of 20, I, I did my FPSC one in January, I think of 2017. And I did my CFP at the end, a capstone in the middle, like 2017 was, oh yeah, we merged our practices in 2017. It was a very busy year, come to think of it. There was a lot. I don't know. I just felt like it was something I had to do. Well, and just to quickly translate what you were saying. So like when you're talking about uh, all these different scholarly papers, you're talking about like more efficient or, or better ways to get people more money in retirement. Is that sort of like the sum, uh, qu a quick summary of that? Yeah, that's a good summary. Or, or ways to save, to uh, like ways to plan to make sure that you efficiently get like income in retirement? Um, ways to identify the particular combination of risks that any particular retirement person might be facing because okay. of their how much reliance they may have on withdrawals from an invested portfolio versus kind of guaranteed floor income. This would be advanced like retirement strategies as opposed to, you know, you're going to convert it to a RIF and withdraw what you have to withdraw plus OAS and CPP. Planning for more than just like whatever you got is what's going to happen. Yeah. Or like, well, you've got what you've got, but let's make it fit together in a way that gives you the most amount of comfortable spending at the least amount of risk and whatever. And that combination is going to be different depending on your pro the things you're worried about, whether you're single, whether you have family around you, whether, I mean, all sorts of things impact what your real retirement risk profile is more than just your portfolio profile, but your, your kind of entire retirement experience profile. Do you have to do that early on or can you do that? Like once they already have things in place and they're about to retire, is it something you have to tackle early? Yes and no. I mean, it's, it's nice to know ahead of time. It's nice to know ahead of time what your retirement is going to look like before it actually <laughs> happens. Uh, sure, wouldn't that sure. be nice? Um, Ideal. But there are there are certainly ways, that, like kind of some strategic things that you might be able to put into place ten or five years before actually starting to withdraw from your portfolio or or apply for benefits or any of those things. Um, but all like a, a true retirement income strategy actually starts having real numbers attached to it that are you're going to be your lived experience right about the time like it all comes you, you kind of pre-plan but then it all comes together in those years when now I really am applying for Canada Pension Plan now and yeah, this is what you're, it looks you're, like you're right there yeah so yeah. And that's the, so you you can feel like you can add a lot more value to to that which you know maybe as a uh, again quote unquote financial planner you wouldn't have been exploring as much Basically, you're you're coming into what you want to do, and I want to quickly touch because we, you know, like like I said, sometimes it takes forty five minutes, sometimes it takes an hour. We're, <laughs> it's long, we're, and and you know, like we said before the the recording even started, I think we did talk a lot about stuff before you were twelve. So, <laughs> and that's mostly my fault because I'm curious about the, the I'm curious about the summer camp. But I know that you're very involved with the idea of you know assets under management versus fee only planner versus fee based. I guess that's assets under management. Um, maybe you just talk about uh, your views on how a financial planners should be compensated. I mean, it does go back to you know time at the bank, right? I want mm -hmm. the person who gets who I want the person to be paying who is receiving and evaluating the value. So if a client wants something from me, I want to be paid by the client, not by some other third party that I need to make happy. 
Um, I don't want to get paid by the sale of product. I've been there and I don't want to be there ever, 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 ever again. I want to come away from an, an experience with a client presenting problems or stresses and being able to solve them in ways that as far as possible match with that client views as success and not what some other manager that I have to walk over to and say, like, oh, I didn't sell my Visa card like that. That scarred me. I'm not going to do that again. I, of course, have very strong opinions that I don't think anybody should be doing it that way. I think that the only person that should be in a position to be compensated is the person who's giving the advice um, and by the person who's receiving the advice. And so whether that means that, I mean, I, I can totally see that it's very convenient for clients and for um, financial planners slash investment advisors because investing is often viewed as sort of the really important part of any financial plan. Like, okay, that's fine. You, okay, when you retire, blah, blah, blah. But really it's the investing that's the important stuff. It's not that I don't respect that, but that's not my area of expertise. And I don't want to pretend that I can be a really stellar financial planner, the person that I want to continue to grow into be, and a really stellar investment advisor. I would like my clients to have the option of coming to me for their financial plan and then working, building a team of you know professional advisors that, okay, that person does your invest, investing and they have a very defined investment policy statement and they have evidence-based investing and they have low fees. And like to me, a client being able to build those from the, the experts that um, they resonate with, they have a good relationship with, that have a very good service offering that are going to charge them reasonable rates and not be influenced by any third parties. Um, you can do that easier if you're putting together a team rather than if you're looking only for one person does, that does all those things. It doesn't mean that there aren't single people that are doing all those things and doing them really well and really ethically. It just means that my business model, of course, has created a bias for only my business model. <laughs> No, well, I totally agree with that philosophy too. It's like, yeah, investment is just, it's almost, to me, it's the, like the last thing that we do. It, it's the last five minutes. Okay, we talked about all this stuff. We figured out what it is that you want to do with money, like what your goals are with money. Okay, now let's just find somebody who's going to be able to achieve that for you. Is that sort of what you're saying too? Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. I kind of always thought of it as like, you know, the blueprint is the plan and then like mm -hmm. the actual bricks that you happen to build that building with is the investing it, again i mean cfas have much more rigorous training and testing than cfps do and so i would certainly want my clients to be working with somebody who has spent a long time i mean i don't know if you've interviewed daryl brown on your podcast but he's a cfa he's the kind okay. of person that has done all that training and is still going to tell you you know, I, I still think for most people, indexing is going to be the right thing or whatever. Yeah, right? I, so. I've had a couple of CFAs on uh, uh, Michelle Hung is one of them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, she's like, you know, she's trying to simplify investing for people, even though she understands how to do it in a complex way. Most people are not going to go there. And so again, I, I just want to be solution agnostic or product agnostic for clients. Yeah, sure. I want I want them to be able to feel and I'll work with them to do that for sure. For sure. I prefer working as a team with the person who's investing their money so that it's not, they're not hearing in one ear do this and another ear do this, that we're challenging each other professionally to give them some compromise between our two areas of expertise. And and how about asset compensation versus uh, fee, uh, flat fee compensation? What's your policy there? 
it's hard to get asset compensation, like percentage of assets under management here in Canada. I have a good friend in Colorado called uh, James Osborne, who has a all-in-one shop where he invests for clients and it's $4,000 a year flat fee, because in his mind, there is no difference in the amount of work that he as an advisor has to do that would um, justify a difference between what he charges somebody with a $100,000 portfolio and somebody with a $3 million portfolio. That's a good point. Yeah. Why Why should you get so much more? What, what more work are you doing for that $3 million client, really? Yeah, especially when you're looking purely at the investment space. I mean, as the portfolio gets bigger and now you're not just in RRSP and TFSA sheltered portfolio decisions and you're trying to you know, think about how those three portfolios, now that you're in a non-registered, how it all works together and maybe you're, you know, you're professionally incorporated and you invest inside your corporation as well. There's definitely complexities that come with having more money. And there are, I mean, there is expertise that is valuable and worth the money for people to have, again, this kind of rules-based, disciplined, governed by an investment policy statement kind of experience with their portfolio. But the, the idea that that should continue on and on and on forever, that there is this 1% of your portfolio that you need to give back to this person every single year, I don't think that the compensation matches the expertise. And I have respect for the expertise, but I just don't think that 1% of assets over 30 years to you know, yeah. somebody for managing it is commensurate with the value that's being provided. That's a really good point because, like, yeah, if say it grows to three million, that someone's getting thirty thousand dollars. When probably now it's just sort of a set it and forget it uh, sort of situation. Do they deserve that thirty thousand dollars? I mean, yeah. Even if it's not set it and forget, even if they're doing like they're really proactive and they're like, even if they're doing all of the things that you would want your portfolio manager to do. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that it's worth that amount of money. Or that's that's a lot of money to get in one year. Yeah. I mean, who am I to say in lots of ways? The other thing, I mean, really, when you are compensated by the amount of money that an investor has in, you know, managed with you, then your, your natural bent is to want more money invested with you. So the classic example is, should I pay down my mortgage or should I invest? Well, if you're only being paid by being invested with then you have a conflict. Whether you act on that conflict or not is almost beside the point. Whether you disclose that conflict is beside the point. And actually, there's some really good scholarly research that says when you disclose a conflict, you are therefore, in some ways, the client, you create trust in a client that allows you to act on that conflict without being blamed for it. Like it just increases because the trust level. it's all out in the open. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I'm doing this in a way. I refer people to Wellsimple. Not always. But uh, if they don't have any plan, for example, of what to do with their money, I think going to a robo is the easiest way for a lot of people. What do you think about robos? I Well, I did a lot of research into robos when they first came out around like fall 2014 was the first launch of Wealthsimple and Nest Wealth and Wealthbar and a yeah. couple others. And I remember getting into an argument with the, one of the co-hosts at the time of the podcast and he kind of wrote an article that said, well, this one is the best. And I wanted to say like, no, 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 no. It's the best in this particular, like with this amount of money, with this number of accounts. Yeah, yeah. So it started this whole research project that went on for two or three years. Now, I've, I mean, I've kind of learned what I wanted to learn and things have evolved beyond my level of knowledge ever was. But I think robo-advisors fit a spot in the market that is necessary, especially, yeah. I mean, I'm coming from that small town perspective. We don't have a lot of choice here. So if you have to be in person with whoever you can drive to in 40 minutes, it kind of limits the choice of who you get. And so if you can choose from the best 
available and people who have built a business model around your particular amount of money being invested, that's great. I do not like referral fees or affiliate links. I don't like it at all. And for me, it's because I can identify a conflict and I could remove it. I don't want to ever second guess myself in the shower one morning being like, well, I know Wealthsimple and they pay me referral fee. I'm just going to, I'm sorry, this, it sounds very specific to you, but it's something no, we struggle with uh, a lot at Sprint. And I, right? I've, I've wondered, that's why, that's why I ask, you know, I'm asking you, I've asked people in the past, like, you know, if Wealthsimple cuts me or gives me a cut of their 0.5%, which they're charging anyway. Yeah. Does, and then that gives me access to look into my client's things to say things like, Oh, it looks like you stopped contributing. Why is that? You know, let's start that up again. I don't, maybe you forgot or something like yeah. th simple things like that, that there aren't um, registrable activities because I'm not obviously registered, yeah. but like administrative stuff and things that can add value. I mean, is it worth that 0.15% that I'm, I'm getting, does it make me biased to always send someone to Wellsymbol? Was I going to do that anyway? Those are interesting conflict of interest questions, which is what you're, you're saying, right? Maybe I, maybe I wouldn't have always said that, but I was sending people to Wellsymbol all the time before. That's an I don't know. I know that's a really interesting conundrum, just even in the world of personal right? finance blogging. Like, well, if I like this pro or any kind of blogging or any kind of influencer yeah, position, yeah. Shouldn't I, I get paid used, for it, right? Yeah, I would have used this anyway. Yeah, Why can't I yeah. tell people? I keep, I mean, all of, I think about this a lot. People would say that I angst over it a lot. I've come down on the side that makes sense to me and I've stopped thinking about it. I would sure. rather not ever, ever even have that question in my mind. So I don't. Um, yeah, and we, that's we a wouldn't. Good point. Yeah. But it doesn't, I mean, I'm not the arbiter of all things ethical, so why listen to me? <laughs> well, no, and, and, and the, what makes me feel comfortable, because I, I do share a lot of what you're saying, is that I'm not making it more expensive for them to go to the robo if, if they were going to go in off the street. I'm just allowing Wealthsimple to give me a piece of their 0.5. I mean, I have, I have clients on the Wealthsimple dashboard and on Nest yeah. Wealth, Just Wealth, but they don't, I, like the fee is zero. So, so I yeah, charge. You, so plan. you brought it yours down to zero because you charge you, you would charge them the flat fee for the planning because you, you're making money already for your services outside of that. Yeah, that just. In fact, having being able to peek in on their balances and kind of their performance over the past little while, it, it's it's actually easier for me than it's it nice, would. Right. Like I don't have to get them to upload statements, so it's convenient for all of us. And so to me, convenience should equal. From my perspective, they shouldn't be paying me extra for that because because it actually just helps both of us. It takes up time. I'm kind of time based, right? I sell time for. Yeah, money. absolutely. And and so what like what I've done to make myself feel you know obviously I'm not a CFP, but to feel myself you know more equivalent uh, to what you're saying is I charge like basically nothing for a flat fee, so that the point one five is like just an extra bonus. It almost it barely adds up to what I might have charged anyway. Um, and and it, it's so low that it seems like why well, might as well just reduce it to zero and may focus on the flat fee more so, right? And then, you, like you said, conflict of interest is gone. And there's, I mean, I think there's an immediacy to people agreeing to cut you a check or that's old terminology. That's old banking terminology. But no, but still, yeah have to actually pay someone from your own however you do it it just feels more immediate than paying out of a portfolio and so for me it's again like if people say no it means they didn't see value it's just the, all the ways that I can see it aligning a client's success 
against my own success, trying to like zap them in a way, like playing a big game of Galaga, like, oh, that could impact my, my value to them. Okay, we'll get rid of that. And it's, and I'm sure it would mean, like, it means we've left money on the table and it doesn't mean that it's the thing that I think everybody should do. Um, but again, it's just that it's the game of, I just, I just want to put that in my too hard pile and I don't want to think about it anymore. So I'll just remove it entirely. And then I can focus on the things that I want to be really, really good at. And I want clients to be willing and happy to pay me that money directly. Like here I've handed my money over to you in whatever stages that we've decided, like over three payments or whatever it is. And I'm yeah. happy. And that's to me the kind of, that's, that's the feeling of triumph that I want, that they were pleased to part with the money. <laughs> no, I, I, I really like that, what you're saying, because that would make me feel more, I uh, feel a lot better about this to say, Hey, you know, you pay me, you'll pay me a little bit more money, uh, the flat, and, and, but then because I have this, you know, uh, connection to this advisor portal, we'll, we're going to cut 0.15% off of your, your asset center management. You'll keep paying me the flat. And if you do get up to the million, well, there, you don't have to pay me that $1,500 a year <laughs> that you would have. Or if you get to three or five million or whatever, you don't have to worry. I'm not going to just keep eroding that from you. You just pay me the flat fee we agree on for my services. Yeah. And then people can cut me loose if they need to. I don't want them to. I mean, I, I don't, I want to keep clients forever and ever and ever. That's how we structure. For sure, yeah, me too. But yeah, I agree. We, yeah, if they'd want to go, we're not going to hold them hostage, right? Yeah, some weird, like, oh, I've got to put transfer papers in or something. That's, I mean, again, that's all like old bank related trauma. <laughs> yeah, didn't... that's true. And it's not like they would, maybe they wouldn't want me to, peer, or you to peer in, still be able to peer in anyway. But then I guess, well, someone could just take you off as the advisor and they would might be that simple right that's right i have that i've had that with clients in the past because really i mean they're they end up in some ways receiving a discount for working with me and having a zero on the dashboard so i like that's, i just that's right feels, that, that is an advantage they're getting a discount they're saving because if you they take you off if they don't go to another advisor they're paying the 0.5 again right yeah and actually or now, 0.4 for 0.4 if they have more money but that I'm thinking now, no, those clients are over that threshold anyway. I had clients who we just don't like, we don't have an ongoing relationship anymore. So it doesn't make sense to be on the dashboard. So we just saying those words out loud made me think like, what is our procedure for then making sure that clients do not feel held hostage just by virtue of the fact that their fees are going to go up by not. Yeah. Being... Well, I mean, I, I, I hold people, you know, just because we're talking about the the details here and, and what's better for, for people. I mean, if I'm a QuickBooks Pro advisor, and if somebody signs up for QuickBooks through me, they get a 50% discount forever, which means I always have to be the one that's billing them because if they decide, oh, I don't really like Bo anymore, I don't want to bill through, through him, they go back to full price, whatever's retail on the website. And so that is a way of keeping people hostage. Um, and I would never want to keep somebody. I mean, there's a bunch of pro advisors out there. You can switch to somebody else. But, you know, it's it's one of those really interesting things. Like, uh, are people just keeping a relationship with me because I have this benefit? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't have loads of clients on any one of those dashboards. But I think I'd like to go back. See, this is it's just constant. It's constant identifying and constant zapping. I think I'd like to go back and just take a look at what incentives are working on them. 
make for sure we're all on the same page and everybody everybody is in agreement with what is happening and they're they're full it's fully transparent which is the big thing for you i know right transparency yes transparency but also transparency in favor of them so that like there's never a point where clients come to us and before we've gone through the financial planning like our process is what it is but before we go through that whole process nobody would be on the dashboard until after we've delivered a plan so it's usually like two or three months after and it's never positioned that way. We always kind of talk about what the retail cost of it is. So the kind of surprise you spend less on it, but. Hmm. Yeah, it's never like built in, like I'm going to get you this discount. It's it's an afterthought. Yeah, but I, I think I need to think about it a little bit more deeply. It's only it's maybe five people that I have to go back and look at. But I mean, for all sorts of reasons, I'm happy we had this conversation, but I'm really happy just to kind of bring that thinking up to the forefront again and dig well, into yeah. it. That's why I just that's why like I want to revisit this thing like even if it's not necessarily in my best interest to not you know get a, a a percentage of assets under management I never you know I don't manage the funds uh I can I'm adding value in whatever way and maybe I'm adding value by having a discount fees but maybe there's a better option and I just want to keep thinking about that and and let people know that there are options you can pay flat you can pay for assets under management you know, there's a bunch of different ways to do it and uh, you have to feel comfortable with it, right? Yeah, I always go back to that. I, I, it wasn't that long ago that I saw it and it was on Twitter and I don't remember who said it, but it, just in that conversation around ongoing assets under management fees, the question was, do you want to be somebody else's passive income? And when yeah. I turn around, do I want to earn passive income from somebody who's kind of forgotten that I'm attached to their portfolio and taking a percentage of it? And I don't, I don't, and and kind of this is kind of this other issue is not the same, but in some ways this, I don't want to be accidentally some kind of thing for a client. I don't know. But yeah, it's like, I would only feel comfortable getting passive income if looking at it as a bonus for the great service I've done for very little fee over the years. That's, that's the only thing that kind of justifies it to me. But I totally, I think I'm closer to on the same page as you is that, if I haven't been doing anything, no, I don't want it to just keep trickling in. That's something that I, it should not be coming to me. Only yeah. if I'm actively doing something. Yeah, that's probably closer to my policy. Okay, so that I think we should uh, <laughs> <laughs> what has quickly. You think? <laughs> it's it's uh, we, should, we should quickly mention because <laughs> I'm way past the time that I said that I would that I would keep you. Uh, just quickly mention uh, your podcast, Because Money. So we're going into the end of season five. We've recorded the finale. We have a couple more episodes to go out. And then we'll come back. Season six will be actually our seventh year of broadcasting because we had one big season. One was one big super season. So this fall we'll come out with some more episodes. And I'm I'm just excited because it's just talking. It's just like this. It's just whatever comes out. We talk about it. It's loosely around money. So some people will not enjoy it. But. Well, and I and I enjoyed, especially because the how many people are typically on uh, co-hosting? Yeah, we're co-hosts. Most of the time, there's we end up with like three. Somebody can is always like off doing something else, but and and everybody has a, a slightly different personality, which makes it interesting. I find uh, we should also mention your company name and where people can go to get a financial plan. <laughs> so I work with a team. We have a <laughs> planning company called Spring. Well, we operate a spring financial planning, but we're technically Spring Planning Inc. And you can find us at springplans.ca. Okay, fantastic. And this is Canadians only, uh, I guess. Well, my 
my part of the practice, I typically only work with clients who are Canadian citizens and residents, um, but my partner, Julia, um, has a very strong cross-border um, set of kind of expertise and works with a lot of clients who are typically not U.S. residents living in the U.S. Usually they have kind of U.S. residency issues, um, but they are like they're, most of their income and assets is in Canada. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I'm glad we got into, you know, the story of your, uh, you know, how you made it to where you are today. And then also, I really wanted to talk about your philosophy on helping people and, you know, how to get paid. And so it makes it makes me think whenever we talk about it, it makes me think more about like, am I doing the right thing for me and for my values and for clients? So this is uh, this is really great. Yeah, I would love to. I mean, sometime we'll just have to sit down and talk about the structure of how you charge people. And I'm very interested in that because, of course, we want to make sure you are charging commensurate with the value you are giving. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm, I feel like I'm probably selling myself short at this point. But like I said, I'm not a CFP like you and I am more I am the accountability guy. I'm the connector. Uh, I know there's value there. And I'm probably uh, I probably need to revisit it. That'll be good. We'll have a whole other episode about that and about what it's like to live in a summer camp. So. <laughs> so it's a whole it's a <laughs> so or a whole series unto itself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for uh, coming on the show. Uh, uh, this is great, and and uh, hopefully I'll see you soon at uh, a Canadian personal finance event. Yeah, man, that would be great. Would be, yeah, we'll just have to sit down and talk about all the things. You got it. Thanks, Bo. All right, thank you. And that was episode 82 with Sandy Martin. If you're a regular listener, thanks so much for downloading the episodes every week. Another way you can support the podcast is by going to my Patreon site and becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash bowhunters. Patreon's a great tool to help creators get paid for their creations. I'm also a co-host and the technical producer of a new podcast called Dear Ruby with my friend and personal finance expert, Rubina ahmed Haq. Head over to DearRuby.com, that's D-E-A-R-R-U-B-I.com. Check out the first three episodes and let us know what you think by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Well, this is the part of the show where I talk about some of the other things I'm working on. First of all, if you want to know more about me and read my story of addiction and recovery, the best place for that is bowhumphreys.com. My personal finance blog is investwisely.ca. I always have a few blog posts on the go, but right now publishing regular blog posts is taking a backseat to the weekly podcast. But if you want to be notified when I do publish a post, head over to investwisely.ca and sign up for my email list. I am a personal finance coach, so if you're looking for someone to help you get organized and to simplify your financial life, let me know. Sometimes all we need is some accountability to get things moving. If you have a small business, I can help you learn basic bookkeeping. I'm a QuickBooks Online Pro Advisor. Whether you need my bookkeeping coaching or not, you should let me know if you're thinking of starting with QuickBooks Online. Because if you pay through me or any other pro advisor, you get 50% off the retail price online basically forever. And I have an even better deal if you go to my small business website, financialaccounting.ca. I'm really proud of my audio blog website, listentomyblog.com. There you'll find audio versions of some of my written blog posts and a few by other bloggers who have given me permission to read their posts. Listen to my blog is great for taking in blog content when you would rather listen than read, which is how I feel most of the time. Well, that's it for this episode. 
I'll be back next week with someone who knows more about Canadian retirement strategies than anyone I've ever met. Fee-for-service financial planner, tax accountant, and financial blogger, Ed Rempel.